Hi, and welcome to ContourCast. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined as ever with my lovely co-host, David Jameson. I'm doing good before you ask. Uh, <laughs> exhausted after a week of US politics. Yeah, I was just uh, saying there that my body clock is really out of sync with the realities of day-to-day life in Scotland because I've gone, I've just shifted myself onto, what was it, West Coast time, Jodie? Yeah, that's what I was guessing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, so we have a very special guest on the podcast today. We're joined with um, Professor Jodie Dean, um, who's an activist and author. Jodie did one of the counter lectures that we ran the series of during lockdown. Um, and she's the author or editor of 12 books, including Democracy and Other Neoliberal Fantasies, Blog Theory, The Communist Horizon, and Crowds and Party. She's also the author of um, a piece that's very, very close to my heart that I enjoy a lot, which is called Comrade. Um, the recording of Jodie's lecture um, that she did during lockdown is available on our YouTube channel, should anyone want to check that out. But obviously, Jodie's joining us tonight um, to talk about the US election. Um, And my brain is a bit frazzled on it all. So I'm just going (laughs) to, just for any listeners, I want to put this in the context of what time and day we're recording this. So this is um, Friday the 6th, just after half past seven. And at my last check, and when I looked at the uh, news update on the BBC, it was um, Biden was gaining a lead in Nevada and Pennsylvania and is on 264 electoral college votes to Trump's 214. Am I, am I still right with that? Um, in some ways, I think it might depend on which, um, like what exactly you're checking, because my last check, AP and the New York Times were still saying Biden 253 because they hadn't given him um, Arizona. And so there's been a little bit of back and forth. In fact, one American news outlet has already said that he's won. So the exact count of, um, of expected um, electoral college votes is not 100% clear. I mean, it keeps us on our toes, right? <laughs> what, what, whatever, whatever scale you're using, this is out of date by the time you're watching it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I, I mean, given that that's kind of the state of play as we generally understand it at this current point, um, what um, what what meaning does this election do you think does it have at this point? Because particularly early on, uh, when the votes were coming in, you could see that um, the uh, that Biden was kind of underwhelming, at least in the sense that Trump was clearly doing better than many people had forecast. And I still think that that's. You can see, for example, that Trump has expanded his coalition. He's grown his vote. A lot of people would would have been surprised by that. Um, on the other hand, there's an even more huge vote for Biden, and I'm sure that his uh, outriders in the media are making much of a so-called blue wave and so on. I mean, are we seeing that kind of return of the center, or is the picture just one of polarization in, in, in general. What's what's the kind of general takeaway from how this vote worked out? Um, I think it's one of uh, intense polarization. Um, and the, the reason I think that it's one of intense polarization is 
how bad the polling was and, and predicting the election, right? Failing to see the amount of support that was out there for Trump. I mean, it's not been a blue wave. Um, I mean, if it was a blue wave, it would have been clear on election night. It wouldn't have, it, and it wouldn't be within the margin of error, like in, in the margin of error in Georgia. Georgia has already said that um, they're gonna have to do a recount because it's so close. And that's without a legal challenge, right? It's just within that, that, that margin where recounts in order. So I think um, it's, it demonstrates intense polarization and to be honest, a real failure on the part of the Democratic Party. I mean, the Democratic Party could not beat someone who's killed 230,000 Americans with the worst COVID response in the entire world. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't defeat someone who separated children from their families at the border and had over 500 children just a month ago who they, did, they couldn't find their parents. Right? Somebody takes babies from their mother. They couldn't defeat that guy. They couldn't defeat a guy who everyone knows is involved in all sorts of legal battles around uh, essentially corrupt real estate deals and tax problems. So that's a huge failure on the part of the Democrats. And in fact, the rest of the down, not all of it, but much of the uh, down ballot um, election uh, shows you that it's the Democrat failure. They didn't flip any seats in the House. In fact, they lost a bunch. I think they lost at least eight. I may be wrong on that number, but I, um, which is also changing. Um, they are, does not look like they're gonna take the Senate. If, if they do, I think that at best they can tie, but they may not even do that. So the Democrats actually have coming out of, are coming out of this hobbled and weak. Um, and um, some will try to say, oh, well, you know, because Biden won the popular vote, this is something like a mandate and this is a strength of going back to normal. Um, I don't think we should fall for that at all, right? This is a, a very weak candidate um, who, you know, may have just caught, you know, crossed over the finish line because of, you know, people's general exhaustion and um, fear and sickness. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more uh, with with that. Like, I, I think that when I was watching, um, like, the initial results coming in, um, the idea that the that Biden and his campaign couldn't smash the most incompetent president in American history, you know, and that that to me is should mm, it should present certain arguments and it should put the Democrats in a position to try and learn lessons, but I don't think that that's what's going to happen at all. Um, his president, Biden's presidency, should he become president? But that's the the kind of indications right now. Um, being hobbled and weak I don't think that there's going to be a, the the lesson that maybe the three of us would like the Democrats to learn will be learned and instead I think that there's going to start being and I've already seen some of this on Twitter um, the blame is going to be laid with a lot of the uh, leftist elements yeah. um, the more progressive parts of the the, the Democratic Party um, and I'm already seeing that starting to happen is that something that that you've picked up on? Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right, Kat. Um, I just, I was just reading an article that um, was reporting on a, um, a call with a bunch of, of um, members of, con Democratic members of Congress. And um, there was, I don't remember what her name was, but there's a mainstream 
um, member of Congress who was just trashing progressives and saying, um, you know, if there's one more call for defund the police, you know, the Democratic Party will go down in flames. Um, you all um, calling for defunding the police cost the election and you're, you know, the ones who've doomed the party and all sorts of like crazy, like really hardcore um, anti, um, anti protest. I would also, I honestly, I think, I mean, I think there's a, um, that it's racist um, because that's what the representation of those of all of the summer struggles as just defund the police when they were actually struggles for justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Daniel Prude, and so many others who've been murdered by aggressive racist militarist police in this country. So um, I think that, yeah, we're in, instead of the Democratic Party saying, oh my God, leftists, we're sorry we've run such lame uh, middle of the road candidates um, and who, at a time when people really want to see fundamental change and we're going to try to do best and we want to we do want to expand to medicare for all and we do want to have a green new deal where we're all together instead they're going to be like yeah um see a progressives you know our new our new um alliances with the um the you know the middle of the republican party so i want to i know this is we're still quite early on in the podcast and i don't want to like start hitting out with my devil's advocate sort of points because i actually do want to explore some of this because i i was wondering if maybe there was an element of truth um to the fact that some of the more can i say careerist elements of the progressive left who came like on the second wave of bernie and the pull that they have had like with identity politics i don't mean necessarily about black lives matter but more on um things like feminism trans rights and pushing them to the front of the campaign do you think that there's an element of truth that that didn't resonate with the electorate um i don't know right um there was quite a few victories for um, candidates running um, more identity-based campaigns. Um, they're also, also for the New York State Legislature, there were some victories from people um, who were running from the Democratic Socialist of America. So a combination of a socialist and a, um, sort of more identity appeals. Um, I, I don't think that that's, that that was a losing um, strategy. I think that the losing, the the more of the losing strategy was figuring out for people who really had conservative districts how to stand up and defend something. I mean, honestly, the Democratic Party's position was not defund the police ever. And if you can't say that, like, like then, then you actually don't know how to speak like a politician. Um, that said, I don't want to deny um, opportunism among new Democrats. <laughs> I think that's clear. I mean, if someone's going to pursue that kind of elect electoral politics, almost by definition, they're going to be some version of an opportunist. I thought it was interesting that during um, the Biden's campaign, um, so there's a way to argue against right-wing talking points that isn't a sort of like Marxist or socialist way. So for example, Trump obviously made this campaign about, and I thought it was a weak argument on his part. In, the, in 2016, he did a very good job of presenting himself as the anti-elite candidate. Whereas in this election, this is the other thing, I don't even think he had a particularly good campaign, but he, he made much more of the sort of Biden's a secret communist stuff, which, you know, it's not very convincing. It's quite a niche subcultural argument. But <laughs> Biden's response to that was never to say, 
Um, if you're calling, um, you know, you, you, improved healthcare, socialism, you know, I mean, it shows how much contempt you have for people in this country, but he never said that. When he was accused of being a socialist, he said, I'm the guy who beat the socialists, right? Which is a very weak response, but it does, I think, indicate um, that, you know, this idea of, I mean, I think Biden was always going to attack the left. I mean, I think if Biden had had an absolute landslide and Trump's support had collapsed, he'd have turned on the left. This was always part of the plan, you know? I mean, does that, does that make things more difficult on the left that you have a very obvious internal struggle? Um, I think at this point it starts to become, um, the issue starts to become how are we thinking about the left, right? It, is the left, the left of the Democratic Party and those who take the Democratic Party as the field of operation or is the left those outside the Democratic Party? And I would say for the, um, I think of the, um, the left as those outside the Democratic Party, right? The, um, whether or not we're talking about movements or the smaller revolutionary parties, um, at least half of DSA would be more, you know, out, a little bit more exterior to the Democratic Party. And so, you know, it, it, it just, because, I mean, I, th I think you can't answer your question without kind of dividing it up. And so for everybody who's, who, who thinks that the Democratic Party is a capitalist party protecting capitalist masters and capitalist interest, no surprise, doesn't make things worse, better or anything. Like we, we've known for, I mean, at the very least since Clinton's kind of, I mean, Clinton cut the working class out of the Democratic Party, right? That way, and shifted the whole orientation towards Wall Street. I mean, so the US just has two capitalist parties. We don't have a real opposition party. And in some ways, um, Biden making this clear is useful. I mean, there was, you could think of like the, the, the kind of, um, pause or interregnum was Obama, where people, you know, because of you know, just the intense racism of the US, it seemed like such an important opening and it's such an important possibility for real change. And things like became, a, it, it seemed different for the left. But, but if we think about the left in terms of you know, working class and workers issues, then it wasn't, it was never that, right? It was always a more diverse elite, not um, the, a expansion of the possibilities for working class interests to get a hold on it within the US political system. Um, no, I think that's interesting. Um... Uh, and I suppose we'll have to watch how that unfolds in terms of uh, how the left faces Biden if he is indeed uh, going to form the next presidency. But I wanted to ask next um, about the other side and about what Trump is doing uh, and how, you know, why, why is he resisting in this way? Is this really about him trying to hold on to the election? Is that a real objective for him or is he trying to, is he trying to just build a movement that extends his influence into the kind of post-election period. Yeah, can I just come in on like what David is saying there? Because I've been, see when I've been looking at Twitter today, just to, you know, increase my own blood pressure, there's a lot of people who are, um, you know, this kind of like Trump as a toddler, Trump is like a child, he's behaving unpresidential again and this was a great reason to get rid of him in the first place but there's this real kind of like 
laughing at him and that he's just having a tantrum. But I think that underneath it, there's something very sinister and very dangerous happening here. And I don't think that Trump is necessarily an idiot. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, the, I'll tell you, um, the one thing I think, the, the, be, the real benefit of Biden's win is going to be that we all don't have to talk about Trump every day for in the next four years. <laughs> because it, you know, it's since... Uh, you know, since his campaign five years ago took off, he's dominated all of our, you know, thinking and feeling and 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 mental space. Um, so, um, I, I guess I'm I take the view that Trump Trump's world is just about him and his like id, his appetites, his ego, his am I winning? Am I losing? Am I loved? Am I not loved? Right, like just like 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 this the the kind of path, you know sort of pathetic person who needs to like be on stage all the time and being like he had to do the rallies right he had to do all these big rallies in the time of COVID he had to appear at the White House after he was returns from the hospital um, and you know whip off his mask he always has to have an audience and I think that that this is not it's I don't think he's having a po a political strategy that makes any sense. I think that he is trying to, you know, not lose, not be a loser, because that would be bad. And the only way he could possibly lose is if he was being, you know, some people were stealing from him and then making sure that people agree with him and, and, and still love him. So I think that, like, I don't think he's strategic enough to be a movement person. I think that earlier it was Bannon, Steve Bannon, the, you know, the big, at the beginning of his administration, his campaign, who was the movement person. I don't think the Trump kids are movement people. I think that they're just sort of, you know, relatively not bright, um, sort of entitled celebrity kids. And so, so I don't see a strategy there. Um, I think the, the um, yes men around Trump you know, we'll, we'll keep on with saying, okay, we can try this, we can try that. I think Giuliani, you know, the lawyer, um, who's great in the Borat movie, by the way, just great. Um, the, um, I think Giuliani may be really at his core a fascist, right? A, a hardcore law and order, um, as long as law is what he wants, right? That kind of, you know, sliding around law is just an instrument of his own um, sadism. I think Giuliani might want to use this strategically, but I don't think that's part of Trump's interior makeup. That's interesting because I, I kind of assumed that he, I mean, I sort of agree with you. It's it, that part of the problem with American politics these days is you kind of, you're always asking questions about Trump's psychology. What is his motivation in this situation? That's always true. Psychology always matters in politics, but there's really a time when the sort of deranged psychology of one individual matters so much. But I, I think whether, whether it's coming from a place of strategy or whether it's coming from a place of egotism, um, I think it does actually help Trump potentially in a number of ways. It could backfire. But I also do think he's putting the Republican Party in a difficult position. I mean, when I, back when I sort of was telling myself there's a serious chance that Biden just wipes Trump away here, I thought to myself, well, that means Trump is gone, and it means that the Republicans then have a radicalized base with no charismatic leader, which is a terrible place for the Republican Party to be. And I thought, you know, they're in real trouble now. And whereas in 2016, when there was quite a lot of Republican resistance to Trump, 
by 2020, there was basically none. You know, even people like Marco Rubio, supposedly moderate figures in the party, were just going on his campaign trail and making speeches for wonderful President Trump. Um, so I thought, you know, they could be in real trouble now trying to re-establish a kind of, uh, you know, less less complicated, less less populist Republican Party. Now I think they're in real trouble because um, that base is so radicalised. Uh, Trump is continuing to radicalise it. He's continuing to deepen that radicalisation. Uh, what can the what can the, the the traditional the establishment Republican leadership do about this situation? Uh, you know, is it even possible that they get dragged to the right by this process? Because that was certainly the case with the Tea Party. I mean, uh, you know, everyone's fawning over John McCain at the moment, but it was him who introduced uh, Sarah Palin. Uh, and, and help to radicalise the, the, the Republican base. So, you know, what happens to them with all this going on? And I, I think that's, those are really interesting questions, you know, for us to think about. Um, okay, the first thing I, I, like I've been, I've been really surprised since Tuesday about how minimal the um, protests have been. And I mean, I, I, and, and part of me, I got, I, part of me was like thinking by um, Wednesday morning, I was thinking it must just be the case that the big social media giants like Facebook and Twitter are not giving us the news about this because they want to kind of uh, keep it on the DL so as not to incite some kind of of real like crisis, right? Like it's like a kind of, you know, crisis intervention prevent it from becoming civil war or something. Because I think most people expected things to be utterly chaotic starting Tuesday, right? Expected armed militias at voting booths. I mean, even in the week before there were reports in multiple places of um, Trump supporting um, caravans driving through primarily black and brown neighborhoods in order to exert a kind of um, intimidation on voters there. And yet Tuesday went with in fact fewer um, you know, uh, stories of voter intimidation in election places than in a tip more typical US election. So, and then, and then in the last couple of days, yes, there's been some protests, but they've been relatively small, particularly compared to like all the protests from the summer. And so this has made me start to wonder, all right, how radicalized is Trump's base? It's totally clear that the country's polarized, right? If you, when you, um, for all their, I like looking at exit polls. I mean, maybe they're no better than any other polls, but, but whatever, it's some sort of data. And the exit polls were just sort of crazy. Like, like people who voted for Trump, like, I don't know, like some crazy amount, let's say 80%, it could be like 76, it could have been 92, but you know, in that ballpark, thought he did an okay job or a good job handling the coronavirus. <laughs> like, that's just crazy. Um, then the people who um, voted for Biden thought Trump did a terrible job with the coronavirus. And then people who wanted a strong leader voted you know, completely highly, like 90% of those people voted for Trump, people who wanted, um, you know, national unity, 90% um, of them voted for Biden. So you saw intense polarization, um, really, and, and there are a bunch of other indicators that were uh, on these sort of um, issues where people were really polarized. And so that seems really clear, but I'm not sure 
that that people are radicalized in the same way and i'm not sure i don't we may not know that like there may not there may not have been an expansion or an intensification of or radicalization of his base so we've got polarization but maybe not so much radicalization if by radical if by radicalization we mean you know really going out in the streets going out in the streets with the guns i mean you know, we thought earlier in the summer you had people with guns like um, going into the um, Michigan State House. Later on, like last month, they were going to kidnap the governor. So we've seen a, a fair amount of organized white supremacist groups doing stuff, but that hasn't been, they haven't been doing that in the last few days. So is that going to expand? Or not, and so, and so I just—I actually think it's a question on the radicalization part, and 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 um, and I'll be interested to see what happens. So that's the first thing on the Republican Party's part. Um, I've already been wrong on this within the last twenty-four hours. So, um, because on Wednesday, after Trump had made his you know early morning, well, I'm you know clearly winning. If we you know I I won. Um, we should, you know, just declare this or whatever he said early in the morning. No Republican operate, you know, no Republican um, elected leaders backed him up or said anything. They were really like Chris Christie, who's the former governor of um, of uh, uh, New Jersey. Um, he was and kind of a Trump man. He was not supporting that, and you didn't get any real support there. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, so the Republican leadership is not standing by him. That's changed though now in the last 24 hours, even after yesterday's crazy or last night's crazy speech um, where Lindsey Graham from South Carolina has been all in for Trump and a few others have been all in and they're repeating the, um, oh, it's really crucial to not just, they're repeating not just we've got to you know, count the um, legal votes, which is duh, that's what an election is. Um, it's they're going off with the, um, uh, the, yes, there's numerous cases of fraud. This is being stolen. The Democrats are doing this. It's corrupt, blah, blah, blah. So I think that seeing how, how much of the Republican Party leadership goes um, hardcore on this Trump stolen election stuff, that's going to be really crucial. And that part, I think, is still unfolding. So I'm, I, but I think that's separate from the radical base question. I did wonder that this result um might be worse in some ways for the centrists within the the republican party than for centrist democrats because i actually i no matter like what the the outcome is for trump i think it's really impossible to draw a line under trump's populist era and for the democrats they can and, and they will as we've said blame their poor performance um on the the kind of the, the kind of ID politics careerists as they might present it. Um, but I think it's going to be much harder for centrist Republicans to to gain any sort of traction back, to gain any sort of messaging back to a particular base. Yeah, I, th I think that's right, Kat. And, and the way I would put it, though, is that um, the centrist Republicans have already been totally eclipsed. Right when they cooperated with the um, appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, um, with uh, you know less than a month before the election, 
that was a real sign of a essentially just they're only acting in a partisan way. Um, they're not acting in a way that is, I don't know, the, the mainstream likes to say they're not acting in terms of normal politics, um, but, it, but they're not acting as moderates, right? They let the most extreme elements of the Republican Party dictate how they act. Like, so, so moderate Republicans have exercised no guidance or leadership in the Republican Party for quite a while now. So, I mean, it's almost like, like, like you know, we don't have a working class party. We have two capitalist parties, a party that of the ex, of a kind of extreme right or that's only pushed by the extreme right and a party that's really um, say the, you know, the kind of party of, of neoliberalism and the professional managerial class. So it's like, you know, those elements of the ruling class. Can I ask about um, the, the kind of I was about to say the international impact of this, but it's kind of internal as well, right? What does this uh, election represent in terms of the longer term decline of American hegemony? So obviously, like, I mean, people can overstate this. America is still by, by far the most powerful state on earth, the wealthiest and, and, and so on. Um, but this does feel like a bit of a moment. Um, and though I remember people saying this about George Bush's first election, you know, with the hanging chads and so on, this has made a fool of America's claims to be this hyper-democratic beacon to the world. But I think in, in many ways, this will be worse that, that you have um, Trump holding on in this way, making all kinds of claims, you know, the president claiming that his country is not effectively democratic. Um, it is a bit of a, a moment. What does that do to kind of American kind of imperial ideology, both at home and abroad? And I ask that because it strikes me as well that it would be difficult just to look at the division you've talked about between those two parties of capital and say, again, I think sometimes people out of America kind of falsely imagine this, that the Republicans are the imperialist party, though they are an imperialist party, you know, but there's a sense in which some of the elements that Trump has gathered into his coalition are people who feel disenchanted. They're not necessarily the most kind of like, um, you know, make America the kind of, the return it to kind of global empire that, that sticks its finger into every pie and all this kind of stuff. I think that's a kind of wrong conception. So what does this do to like imperial ideology in America? Um. So I th uh, first thing, let's I want to uh, look at two kind of bases for um, U.S. imperial for U.S. imperialism. One is clearly the uh, military power, and and the U.S. still has that <laughs> nuclear weapons and military bases. What like in 180 countries? Um, so that's there, and that's dangerous, and um, and also for a declining he he um, hegemon to have that much military power is also dangerous. Um, next thing is then U.S. economic power. Um, I was just reading something today um, that was saying that China has actually experienced um, it was a, you know second quarter economic growth, um, like pr uh, productivity growth, like over three percent, maybe three three point five, maybe maybe I'm dyslexic on this five point three, but but some like serious growth, um, even with coronavirus because they got it under control. And the U.S. has, of course, declined dramatically, and so there's like an 8.8 8 to 8 to 9 point spread between how much um, China has uh, has grown and how much we've declined. US, so U.S. economic power, in the near term, is looks to be um, 
quite secondary and diminished. Um, and that I think is gonna get increasingly severe. So if we think about, so we've got those two things in play and then you have the policies and the Democrats um, are almost always more imperialist in terms of getting involved in foreign wars, um, thinking that they wanna swing America's big, you know, swinging morality and use that to penetrate other countries all the time. Um, and um, I, um, so I think that is still, good, that's still likely um, to, you know, full stop. And then the next thing, you know, you said earlier, um, David, something like the election wasn't, you know, there weren't, Trump didn't have any issues out there. I mean, there, there were almost no issues in the election. I'll talk about the one a little bit later, but I think there were, there were no foreign policy issues because there's too much agreement um, at this point. So it's not going to be the case that like, the Democrats aren't going to try to, to change the um, capital of Israel back to Tel Aviv, right? They will be happy with it in Jerusalem. Um, they were racing the Republicans to see who, who could be most anti-China. And for the long, for quite a while, they've been more anti-Russia than um, the Republicans have. So I um, I don't see, and, and with respect to um, Latin America, the, you know, the Democrats have the same kinds of kind of anti-socialist attitudes towards um, the countries in Latin America. So I don't see, um, yeah, I, so overall, I mean, I, I guess I just see our continued decline, maybe a little bit slower. Um, a lot I think is gonna depend on Europe and is Europe going to kind of give a pass to the US and say, okay, we're just glad, you know, that you've got a normal politician back. And so let's play our regular game. Let's get back, you know, with, and reestablish our relations. Or are they gonna be like, eh, you, you guys are too risky. The Trump stuff was too awful. We don't need you. We'll, con you know, we'll do our own things um, at this point. I think a lot, a lot more depends on Europe at that point. Um, I think that that like yeah I totally agree with that when I was watching the coverage the other night and um, one of the pundits was talking about that one of Biden's priorities as president would be to begin restoring good international relationships um, and begin to you know restore NATO essentially um, which is definitely like particularly within Scotland has become one of the key battlegrounds in the independence movement mm -hmm. over an independent Scotland's membership of NATO or not. Um, obviously the main nationalist party, the SNP, uh, would want an independent Scotland and NATO. But I do think that the Biden presidency and the attitude towards NATO and how that changes is going to be even more important for people in Scotland to begin making the arguments about the, what NATO is. Like, you know, it's the relationship between the US and Europe and how that is solidified around NATO and nuclear weapons. Um, I think one of the other, the main international issues that ties into some of the political discussions that we've been having recently on not just the podcast, but in the left more generally um, in the UK is around, is around Palestine and Palestine solidarity, because regardless of the Trump, a Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, they're both pro-Zionist, pro-apartheid, pro-IDF. Like, and I'd, I'd seen this um, point made on on Twitter, but not, not, in, it wasn't widespread, but there were certainly good news outlets um, 
putting this forward. And as you say, you know, Biden's not going to, you know, reverse any of the decisions that, that Trump made. Um, but I think that there are big questions to be asked about what happens in the Middle East uh, with a Biden presidency. And how do the left respond to that? Now, what really worries me is that in the UK, we've had the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party, um, you know, after the, the anti-Semitism report. And all of that does come down to, it does come down to discussions about the Israeli state, about the nature of Britain and America's adventures in the Middle East. Um, and we're, I feel like the left, particularly in the UK, are really losing the argument on these things. Um, and I, I have real concerns about that. So I just wondered, like, what what kind of conversations were happening um, within the the left, like the outside the Democratic Party in the states on the question of Palestine? Because um, I saw in, on Al Jazeera that actually on election day, Israel demolished more Palestinian homes mm. on that day than they had in the, the previous ten years. Um, so I think it's it's a key issue um, when it comes to international relations and imperialism, the relationship between the UK and the US, and also like the US adventures within the Middle East. Yeah, I, I'm I'm ashamed to say I didn't know that about the demolishing of the um, houses in um, Palestine on Election Day. It's like with the narcissism of US elections. It was like that was the only thing that was happening in the world, which is of course ridiculous. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad to learn, but sad to that that's, you know, um, I, I think there's a, uh, and I may be wrong on this, right? Because um, I think I mentioned I'm in the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and we um, have a long-standing commitment to solidarity with uh, Palestine, and and so I don't have a, um, I'm I'm I, I'm not sure if my um, orientation to what the rest of the left is doing is just it, like it may not be accurate because it would um my sense is like oh everybody's in favor of bds um you know everybody divestment yeah. sanctions but when the last time i was in the uk and talking with a bunch of people it did that it did seem like the us left had an easier um that uh, the, the us left was um more openly pro-Palestine and had a, a clearer pro-Palestine position than at least the, the left in, the, in England because of the anti-Semitism problem and accusations, which is not, it's, it's um, it, in, the, in the US mainstream, it's used that way. But among the left, I don't think so. But, that, but again, that may be a little distorted because of where I'm coming from, I hope not. No, I, I think I think that is true now, and I think that's sad because it very much wasn't true even a few years ago, which goes to show how effective these campaigns can be. I mean, I th there were reports out uh, a few years ago where um, Israeli officials were saying, we need to understand the British case study and stop it spreading. Because within, in Britain, within about 10 years, uh, British society had gone from basically completely uncritical of Israeli policies uh, to yeah, huge demonstrations in support of the Palestinians, particularly from about 2009 with Operation Cast Lead. For years after that, there were massive demonstrations uh, on Britain's streets. There was huge activity around uh, BDS on campuses. Uh, 
And Israeli officials were saying, we need to do something about this because this could spread across Europe and then we're in real trouble. And it was bad enough that Britain, along with France, is probably like, you know, the most important European ally of Israel. So it would become a real mess and a real problem. I remember thinking about the time of one of these huge demonstrations. It must have been about... 2014 maybe and there was a huge demonstration of about half a million people in London think, looking at it and thinking that's irreversible like you can't you can't break that down you can't beat that this is a kind of this is like in Britain when anti-apartheid became a huge popular mood and um, it totally left the kind of margins of, of, of the kind of far left and became a generally accepted uh, political position among huge layers of society. A few years later, here we are, and yes, it's very evident that much fewer people want to talk about it because the campaign worked, basically. The campaign terrified people and chased people away from the, the issue. And I also, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong about this, I've seen better solidarity from many quarters of the US left, for, 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 for Corbyn in particular, than I've seen in parts of the Labour left. Uh, which kind of shows you, you know, that because there's a distance there, it, there's less of a kind of emotive terror, you know, kind of around it. Uh, and there must be people in the international left looking at the situation saying, why are you letting your country's most famous socialist be destroyed like this? Why are you letting it happen? Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, I, I've got to say, I've actually been kind of shocked to not see more statements of solidarity with Jeremy Corbyn and utter condemnation of this expulsion. I mean, I, I found it like shocking actually, um, when that's the the kind of, of um, the reflex of hearing about it in the US has been, I mean, again, in the US left has been like, oh my God, this is terrible. How could this happen? Not, um, oh, well, you know, there was a problem there. It's a good thing they're addressing it. Like not even close. Um, so just to round up on our discussion, just sort of one last question, I think that, that feeds on from some of the other points that have already been made. Um, despite being backed by Wall Street, you know, the 1% and um, the economists, like all of those papers of financial interest, financial and capital interests, Biden did not have a great campaign. Is he going to be a lame duck president? And if so, how do you think the left can intervene? So I um, I don't know what to predict about, you know, what kind of, of president he will be, but I think you're absolutely right to say it's what matters is what the left does. And um, what, so, and I think the, um, on some parts of the left right now, there's a concern that, oh, all of the liberal outrage that has been a big deal for the last four years, all of those folks are gonna be like, okay, you know, Trump's out, we're done, and they're gonna go home. And frankly, I that think that might be good because um, it's really made it very, it's made, it's clouded a lot of issues and made it very difficult to, um, to kind of push forward a more socialist consciousness and more socialist orientation. Everything has been just about Trump. So um, it might seem like a little bit of a decline of energy for a bit, but 
the what the what the left has to do is now hold Biden's feet to the fire. And this is going to be done in the ways that Bernie Sanders had always said that he was going to need to govern. For, and for him, it would be governed for, um, for with Biden, it will be the op it will be the left opposition. And that's what the movement in the streets, right? We've got to um, the left has got to be or, or oriented around Medicare for all. I mean, it's ridiculous that we don't have a national health program. Um, we've got to be oriented around the um, the Green New Deal um, and climate change. I mean, I think everybody expects immediately Biden will get us right back into the Paris Climate Accord. Um, and the, I mean, the damn virus is still around and we have no national level, there is, there is no national level leadership or guidance or program or mandates or anything about that in the US. It's all because of the federal, federal system, everything is done on a state and local level. So there needs to be guidance there. Um, there needs to be the recognition that um, as this intensifies, there will be more shutdowns. And also people are, that are coming up with having to pay their rents and mortgages. There should be no having to pay rents and mortgages. There needs to be the equivalent. I think I saw um, uh, some finance um, numbers today that there needs to be something like $200 billion a month um, allow, you know, set aside by Congress for paying for people who are um, unemployed, furloughed, um, you know, disadvantaged in whatever economic way because of the coronavirus, right? That, we, there needs to be a serious set of, of provision of, you know, measures taken to you know, protect household and families because we're going to face a massive, massive wave of homelessness. So I think, um, and I think a movement that that there's no way that the Democrats will pursue this without a hardcore movement in the street um, demanding it. And we, we absolutely have to do that. Okay, Jodi, uh, thanks very much for your thoughts. There are a lot to chew over. And, yeah, uh, and uh, as we say, you know, by the time anyone's watching this, I dare say <laughs> a lot of live out, out of date. So it would be good to get you back on at some point when we have a clearer picture of you know, what the new administration is going to be, whether or not Trump has been torn out of the White House, <laughs> his fingernails digging in. Uh, so, yeah, oh, yeah, thanks very much for that. And if, if, um, if um, weirdly, in the next couple of days, like Trump wins, then I want to come right back on so we can redo this whole conversation. I mean, you can still broadcast it, edit, whatever that, but I think we have to like, yeah. we go back. <laughs> okay, well, now what? Yeah, I might go. I might go for a sleep before we do that one, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been very fun. I've enjoyed talking to y'all. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much, Jodie. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Take care. Bye. Bye.